You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we discuss using nootropics, biohacking, and nutrition to help you boost your cognition. My name's Eric. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner. And if you are new to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, if you're listening to this in the audio, if you're watching this on YouTube, then take a second, consider subscribing to the channel. That way you can get notified every single time a new video, which we're pumping out a lot of right now or audio version of a podcast comes out. If you enjoy the podcast and head on over to Apple iTunes and leave the podcast a nice review, five stars would be great. If you're watching this on YouTube, leave a comment with any questions or comments or congratulatory uh, things, whatever. Uh, Just leave a comment. It's good to do Uh, and give it a big thumbs up. And also, if you are someone who loves using only the highest quality products, nootropics, supplements, anything that's at the top of the health space, then head on over to the holisticnootropics.com and download a free copy of my supplement buying guide. This is a fully comprehensive guide that will walk you through ingredient by ingredient to help you find the best quality products on the market. Because as my guest today knows, there's a lot of junk out there. So we wanna make sure you guys are taking only the best stuff so you get the best results, so you can boost your brain and boost your life. Now, my guest today is the one and only Brendan Vermeyer, the holistic savage. Brendan is a mental and metabolic health scientist and researcher, functional uh, functional medicine educator, writer, and speaker. He's a board-certified holistic master personal, uh, I'm sorry, holistic health practitioner, master nutrition coach, master personal trainer, and USAW sports performance coach and CrossFit trainer. He's the proud owner and founder of the Metabolic Solutions Institute for Functional Health and Fitness Practitioners and the Metabolic Solutions Research and Education Foundation, a not-for-profit foundation dedicated to changing the way the world views mental health through advancing the science of mental mental health dysfunction. He is also the creator of the Mental Health Map, a uh, cutting edge lab panel for mental health. Brendan Vermeyer, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I really do appreciate it. I really enjoy our our flow and our conversation. We're both really uh, passionate about mental health in particular and a more holistic approach. So to kind of, um, you know, echo what you said to the audience of pay the fee, right? You know, being somebody that I produce a lot of, you know, free content and I know what that's like. So to your audience, you know, give Eric that five stars, share the episode. So um, help us get the, the good stuff out there because um, it is, it's a lot of work that we do to, to put together meaningful content. And sometimes, you know, having these platforms is kind of thankless work. So it really means a lot when uh, people share the episode and give this uh, podcast five stars. I appreciate that, dude. Okay. Now I'll send you your check. Uh, what do you want? Uh, direct depositor. Um, right, right, right. No, Brendan, uh, you, you, that's so true. And I, I really believe that this episode that we're about to record is going to be one of those that people are going to want to listen to a few times because um, you were on the podcast back in episode seven. You were one of the OGs, the original guests we had on here. And I feel like we just barely scratched the surface on so many interesting topics. It's This was pre-COVID. This was uh, you know, pre a lot 
lot of the world changing. So a lot of things have gone on. Um, I see you very active out there on the socials, putting out just a really awesome message about, um, you know, mental health and not just like, Oh, motivational quotes or, Hey, you know, this is your depression and, you know, don't be shamed into thinking you can't go to, no, no, no. You're actually attacking this from a place where I believe that should be approached from, which is the, the biochemical part of mental health. And you're really introducing some amazing concepts that you're digging out of the scientific literature. So, um, you know, before we jump into all that stuff, just so people can get reacquainted with what you do and who you are, maybe give a quick, you know, rundown on how did you even get interested in this space, especially pertaining to mental health? Yeah, no. Well, I appreciate any time I'm referred to as an OG. I like it. Uh, <laughs> I, I do think I'm a little bit of an original gangster and um, that's cool. And, I, and I'm really happy to be back and appreciate the opportunity. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing is, I have been over the past year learning a lot about how I can most effectively communicate my message to the world in a way that it's going to be received. And uh, I think historically that has not always been the easiest thing for me. And even in the functional medicine space where I do, you know, I mean, that's, that's where I live and operate. And um, even sometimes I find like I have to be very cognizant of my languaging and my pace of how quick I'm talking to make sure that the audience is with me. Cause if they can't receive the information and it doesn't sink in, then, you know, what good is it? Right. And so like I was lecturing at a big, uh, integrative medicine for mental health conference, you know, to hundreds of psychiatrists, you know, these are MDs and psychiatrists. And even then, you know, I got a little feedback that was like really technical and really fast. And so I, I really try to make sure that what I'm saying can, can actually be received. So that way I'm, I'm really empowering people. And I say that because it's tricky. Um, with the latest, greatest research and the emerging science, like there's just so much, like, I think we just have it all wrong <laughs> with, with mental health and the research that we have from the past, like 10 to 20 years, it just totally popped so many scientific holes in everything we thought we knew about what mental illness really is and the prevalence. And, uh, I do kind of feel like I'm, you know, a little bit unique in my messaging because I am trying to attack the complex science, but then reverse engineer in a way that's very applicable to anybody from more of a holistic and functional perspective. And I really niche down into mental health because, you know, I, as you stated in my bio, I started my career with fitness and nutrition. So I really came into functional medicine from the metabolic health and performance side of things. And at first, when I got into functional medicine, I was worried that since I'm not a doctor and I don't have a PhD or a medical license, you know, would people take me seriously or, or whatever? But I really come to find it's my greatest strength because a lot of doctors, PhDs and clinicians and whatever, they really lack context from like a, where the rubber meets the road. And a lot of doctors are not well educated about what is metabolic health and how to build uh, a healthy metabolism. You know, they were taught more the allopathic pharmaceutical reductionistic myopic, like here's the disease and the mechanism of action of the drug. And 
And there's a time and a place for that, but that's not what the world needs most right now. And we see it from the epidemiological research, the mechanistic research and everything in between. And so it was really because I was struggling with my own mental health uh, and I had a you know near death experience from an intentional overdose on my antidepressants. I went through the psychiatric system. Uh, it's a huge, long story, but like I experienced firsthand how dysfunctional the conventional approach to mental illness and mental health disorders really is. And it's such a stigmatized subject anyways. Um, and honestly, if I'm being candid, I see all this stuff that gets posted on social media. Um, and I like that some of it is very, it's very eloquent. Um, and maybe it's helping break down some of the stigma and taboo, but I also, I think there's too many talking heads out there. I think there's too many people. It's like echo chambers and this fluffy self-indulgent stuff. And then all the while, we're just not even tapping into like the hard science that if you understand conceptually, what's really going on under the surface in mental health disorders, oh my God, it opens up like all of these avenues by which that we have control over, you know, our, our psychological outlook, our environmental intervention, our lifestyle intervention, supplemental, pharmaceutical. So we can actually take control of the situation, advocate for ourselves and actually self-heal. So I'm just like, I'm tired of the fluffy stuff uh, as cute and warm and fuzzy as it is. Like, no, we need to talk about physiologically what's really going on here and helping contextualize it of what's going on with kind of the modern American mental health crisis. So that way we can actually do something about it. Um, and sometimes people aren't really ready to receive that truth, but the science is there and it amazes me how much we know scientifically and none of this is common knowledge. None of it's being talked about through conventional healthcare because it doesn't fit their pharmaceutical based business model. Um, and then, you know, the influencers, the world are more focused on kind of the, you know, the psychology and the, the warm fuzzy stuff. So um, yeah, I don't know. I welcome conversations like this to really get that information out there. Yeah. And you make some really interesting points there. Um, you know, first off, the the fact that you are actually speaking and training practitioners, licensed practitioners, doctors, PhDs on these concepts that, you know, of course, of course, they don't understand like a psychiatrist understand a, a, the gut brain connection because that was never a part of their teachings. And, you know, I think about this a lot in terms of like what went wrong in the medical system or not even the medical system, but the educational system, right. That's training these providers as training psychiatrists and, and doctors. And, you know, to the point where, well, all of this schooling, they went through seven, eight years of schooling, like intense medical school and then residency. And now they're hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And then their job gets boiled down to six minutes with a patient. And what else are they supposed to do other than give them an antibiotic, an antidepressant, some kind of medication. They don't have time to like dig into all this stuff. And when you just do that year after year and the health system gets more and more burdened, and now it's like, now they have to go do things that maybe their values don't align with just to keep their job. I mean, they don't even think about like, hey, is there maybe something in this bag of Doritos that could possibly be causing this person or exacerbating this person's depression or anxiety or brain fog or any of these things, you know, because like sitting down and reading the literature, it's, it's overwhelming, but you have to do it. And I find not many doctors do. So you're right. Like 
yeah, somebody might say, well, you don't have a PhD. You don't have the medical training. What do you know? It's like, well, I don't know. I sat down and read, you know, 20 papers on uh, like how the vagus nerve affects, you know, dopamine production or serotonin production. And of course we all know how this eventually affects your mental health. Has your doctor done that? Because if your doctor read the same paper as I would, I guarantee they probably wouldn't just say, take an antidepressant and you'll feel better. They'd probably give you a more comprehensive plan that probably involves diet, um, lifestyle, meditation, those sorts of things. Yeah. The, you know, I, I think about a lot of that stuff too. Um, and I, I think because I don't have a more traditional academia background, it's allowed me to, I don't know, look at the full picture rather than kind of getting domesticated into a very like blinders on narrow, uh, vantage point. But that's the thing you, you have to look at the pharmaceutical insurance medical system, um, more from a business perspective to even make sense of it, of, you know, look at it as a business model. And again, there's, it's, it's great at some things and there's time and place obviously, but I think it's really, they, they've kind of painted themselves in a corner that they can't escape from. And at the end of the day, I mean, we're never going to successfully medicate and cut our way out of a health crisis. That's really driven by an increase increasingly toxic environment mm -hmm. and a very pro-inflammatory self-destructive lifestyle that is, you know, spoon fed to us through just mainstream media. And, you know, so it's kind of this uh, plague of like unconscious consumerism that's based on monetary gain, not good science. And so like you're saying here, like the science is there. I mean, it, it's there if you know where to look and you can, you know, understand it. But that's where like, it, sometimes it, I get frustrated because I'm trying to communicate in a way that people will get it. And sometimes that's tricky, but for example, it's like, you, you kind of have to look at what big pharma is doing. Cause they're very intelligent, very powerful. Right. And if you look at like what drugs they use and why and when they use them and what the mechanism of action is, and if you can understand physiologically, what is that mechanism of action? You can kind of reverse engineer it to be like, all right. So if this drug is trying to, you know, block this receptor, block this protein or induce this or whatever, but, but why was that pathway like messed up to begin with? Right. Like what, what went wrong to begin with? It didn't just happen. You know, the body doesn't do anything accidentally. So, you know, for example, one of the big things right now with big pharma uh, monoclonal antibodies. I say this all the time because I think it's a really, really good example to illustrate the point where, you know, now we have the technology, which is super cool to create these designer antibodies that can target, you know, any specific protein in the body. Um, and that opens up a lot of therapeutic options. And so with depression, they're looking at using like an interleukin six monoclonal antibody for treatment resistant depression, as in, you know, like, all right, somebody came in, they report depression. We gave them the Zoloft and the SSRIs to just boost serotonin activity, which is kind of based on an old theory of mental illness by this point. Um, but that, that only works in like 40% of people, like the efficacy is really bad, you know, and then it can also increase suicidal ideation and cause all these undesirable health side effects, like, you know, low libido and hormone issues and uh, increased depression and apathy and stuff. So now they're really looking at, there's such a huge body of evidence 
that shows that inflammation really drives mental illness. It makes it, you know, you and part of it is the languaging that they use, like the language that big pharma and conventional healthcare uses is not the same language as research and science. And that's not the same language that consumers say, but this whole like cause cure is excessively simplistic and it prevents us from having meaningful constructive dialogue around these subjects. Cause it's not like there's one singular cause of like, Oh, well, you know, a bacterial infection caused by this bacteria. So give this antibiotic and now you're cured. No, you have to be looking at all these causal input signals that are causing dysfunction in these key inflammatory and oxidative pathways that then presents as, you know, a mental health disorder or the exacerbation of more of a genetic disorder like autism or schizophrenia. But when you just look at the fact that it's really driven by inflammation, oxidative stress, and then you realize like, oh, crap, well, everything about our environment and lifestyle is very pro-inflammatory and pro-oxidative. All of a sudden, it changes the narrative in a way that like we can start looking at what are we doing that's driving inflammation, oxidative stress. So that way we can start taking our power back rather than being reliant on these, you know, pharmaceutical band-aids for the rest of our life with you know waning efficacy to to say the least yeah and and i think if the covid situation has taught me anything it just fully surprised me i didn't realize how bad this was but just how conditioned people are to do the opposite of what you're saying you know where it's like we've been so conditioned that it's like okay if there's a problem there is definitely a cure if there's a problem there's and it's not like Oh, the cure is I'm going to take six months and I'm going to like just completely change my lifestyle. I'm going to change. I'm going to uh, do a full inventory of my diet and I'm going to get the problematic stuff out. I'm going to do the things foundationally. No, no, no. It's there is one thing that's going to fix everything. And then when that thing doesn't, because like you said, in SSRIs, it only works for 40% of the people. So that means 60% of those people, probably it either A, didn't work for, or B, had side effects. And now they've got to take another thing on top of the thing. And then they take another thing because they just keep thinking there's a cure for my thing. There's a cure for my thing. And that's why we are where we are with like the vaccines and you know whatever else they're going to roll out now that it's like, yeah, if you just do the thing we're telling you to do, then all this goes away. But it's like you said, there is a root, problem at hand and it's, it comes down to inflammation. Well, and, and this drives me crazy too, in the wellness industry, I, you might've, you might be more involved in this for longer than I have, but when I hear the word inflammation, it drives me crazy because I, I don't think people are really saying it right. I don't think they're really using it. They go, Oh, it's inflammation. Well, do you, why what's, what's inflamed? What did that come? Does that have to do with the immune system? Is it, did they get a boo-boo on their elbow? Like what is the actual thing that's inflamed? So um, maybe we could reverse engineer in your definition, like what inflammation is and why it happens and why it's so connected to things in your environment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think you said that really well. And, And I think a lot of people are starting to really, you know, get frustrated with that. Right. Cause it's like, they get put on one drug, then they have to get on another drug to deal with side effects of the first drug. And then, you know, all the while their quality of life isn't great. Their quality of health isn't great. Their insurance bill and, you know, medication bills are going up and up. So I think a lot of people are starting to feel kind of let down and, you know, failed because they realize like the pharmaceutical kind of merry-go-round that we're on. And, you know, I, I was very disappointed in America's reaction, you know, to the whole crisis in 2020, I, I, at first I was like, no, like, 
no, we're, we're not going to like fall for this business scheme, this, this ploy that's, um, but man, yeah, I, I was really blown away at how the Kool-Aid got really, uh, consumed in, in excess. So, you know, that's, that's a whole thing. It, it did. I think it really revealed like, we're not there yet. And that's where like, you know, people like you and I, like we're operating in a very kind of niche, you know, industry and environment that's not at all mainstream kind of the whole functional holistic sort of ideology has a long ways to go before, you know, it's going to be a little bit more adopted, but it's booming right now. So getting to um, inflammation. Yeah. I think it's really misunderstood. People don't, people don't get it. They don't understand what inflammation is, but ultimately I always like to think about inflammation as, you know, it's the mechanism by which the, your immune system protects you from foreign invaders and helps to uh, clean up and remodel tissues. It's, it's like a cleansing fire. So I always like to give the analogy of, you know, a farmer will burn a field to clear out the brush and recycle those nutrients back to the soil. So now you have, you know, mineral dense, healthy soil for new life to grow. So if you think about the farmers as kind of your immune cells, they use that strategic, acute, controlled fire of inflammation to, you know, burn off the field and, and recycle those nutrients. But that's a very different thing compared to more like chronic or uncontrolled inflammation, which is like the out of control forest fire, like, oops, the whole forest is up in flames. It's burning thousands of acres. It's out of control. Um, um, and it's just laying waste to the land. Right. So, you know, inflammation is really this highly, highly complex, uh, process really regulated by the immune system. And ultimately there it's there to protect you and remodel and heal your tissues. But that's where, when, because of an increasingly toxic environment, all the toxins and xenobiotics and the EMF radiation and just everything about it, plus the, you know, the stress and the high speed nature of our modern lifestyle, the processed food diet, like whatever you choose to look at virtually everything about the modern diet lifestyle environment, it just is bombarding and overwhelming our system with all of these pro inflammatory input signals. And it's not like inflammation is something you do or don't have. It's a process that's going on all day, every day. It's just to what extent, you know, the more bad, unhealthy, you know, fire promoting input signals, your body receives, the more that inflammatory load will, you know, start, um, increasing and increasing. So it's kind of funny how with, uh, like chronic disease and chronic conditions, everybody kind of just blindly accepts like, well, chronic inflammation equals chronic disease. Nobody really refutes that. But as soon as you say like, inflammation drives mental illness, people lose their minds and they freak out and they project on you. And it's like, no, I mean that we, like, we know this, the big pharma knows it and they're trying to figure out how to monetize it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Like we know this inflammation makes any condition worse. Now, whether you want to say that it is the singular etiological like cause uh, it's the mechanism that hurts the body when it's out of control. So if you have a little inflammation and you know, you overall are pretty healthy, maybe you're going to be okay. But most people, it's just so many pro-inflammatory input signals. So their inflammatory load is just high. And we see this in blood work all the time. Like we see that people are walking around with, you know, mildly to moderately elevated inflammatory biomarkers all the time, which is unacceptable. Those should be zero negative. Like it shouldn't be there because normally it's just like your body flips the switch of, Oh, you know, we ran into a pathogen. Let's turn on inflammation 
inflammation real quick to burn that off. Or yeah, you have a boo-boo on your knee. Let's use a little inflammation, to remodel those tissues. But that's the thing is, you know, inflammation is a very destructive um, force to the tissue as is oxidative stress. And so if that sort of burning is um, at a higher level than the regeneration of your tissues, like, what do you think? It, it's degenerative. You know, that's where we get neurodegeneration is what is neurodegeneration, which Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. It's chronic neuroinflammation, chronic low-grade inflammation of the central nervous system. So yeah, people have to kind of understand just this inflammatory spectrum. And it's like, where on that spectrum are you? And it's totally necessary at times. And it's, Absolutely. it's like one of those things where, like you said, it, it, it has a biological purpose in the body. You know, this is how the body fights infection. This is how the body remodels itself, how it grows stronger after injury. Um, you know, I had a conversation with this guy, Don Moxley, talking about spermidine and heart rate variability. And, you know, he made a good point where it was like, you know, the problem with the aura ring is it gives you that readiness score and it says, hey, this is your readiness score today. This is your HRV. You're ready to get after it. Um, but then it'll give you scores on days where your body's not so ready. And he goes, no, no, no. Those are the days where you want to get after it because you do want to train your body against those kind of higher inflammatory days, those days where your stress is a little bit higher. You, you do want to drive your stuff and your, yourself into the ground a little bit, but then you want to like give room to recover. And it's a very similar thing with inflammation where it's like, okay, do you not have any inflammation? Well, you want to break your body down so you can make it stronger. But you know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the chronic inflammation where it's like day after day, you're at this, you know, kind of moderate level of inflammatory cytokines, breaking things down. Your body has not recovered because you're probably not giving it the conditions or there's something, there's something foundational in your body, not allowing it to ever recover. Um, so, you know, I would love for you to break down too. How does neuroinflammation come in from just regular inflammation? Because like you said, this is something that drug companies know, you know, there's, I, I've found so many studies in the literature that talk about specifically, you could literally Google it, uh, depression and inflammation, and you will just have a, an oh, entire yeah. catalog of scientific studies done by reputable people, um, who are discussing this. So, you know, from your research, what do you see as, how inflammation does influence depression, anxiety, these mental health disorders. Yeah. Well, I think you said it really well there. Um, because again, like w I think like exercise is a really good, you know, example, right. Where you go do a hard workout that, that workout is it, it's pro oxidative. It's pro inflammatory. Like you're intentionally pushing your body to places it doesn't want to go and breaking it down and stressing it out and, you know, causing this kind of, uh, acute inflammatory stress response, in response to that exercise. And so, you know, that's kind of where like overtraining comes in. If you're overdoing those hard workouts and not giving your body enough of the recovery time and the, the sleep, the good food to build back up stronger, but that's how we develop resilience. Right. And, and I think that's uh, the standard American metabolism is severely lacking metabolic resilience. Right. And that's what we see with, with COVID and, you know, this, this health crisis is um, immune resilience, metabolic resilience, which is earned. Like you don't find that in a pill, like you have to build up metabolic and physiological and immune resilience. Um, and it's by challenging your body, but then giving it the right input 
signals to build back stronger and more resilient than than before. But yeah, as you said, like the 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 body of literature around the link between inflammation and depression and mental health disorders like you can't argue against it anymore. It's so big. It's so strong. And like I said, big pharma already knows it. They're already working on different anti-inflammatory drugs for mental health disorders. And, you know, um, again, I'm not anti-pharmaceutical for the record. Like, honestly, I think I would be a really good pharmaceutical scientist and maybe I should have chosen that if I just wanted more money, right? Like it's a good, good business model. And some of the drugs that they currently use have a somewhat anti-inflammatory effect, even like Zola. It has a relatively, you know, efficacious, like anti neuroinflammatory effect. But as far as like, you know, inflammation versus neuroinflammation, you know, the physiology is complex, but conceptually it's not, I mean, you know, inflammation could be anywhere in the body. Are we talking about, so, so it's like what tissues are inflamed? Is it all over? Is it systemic? It's everywhere in the body or is it localized, right? Like if you bang your knee into the table, maybe you just have a little inflammation just in those tissues for, you know, a couple of days until it heals. Or if you have like IBS, IBD, leaky gut, dysbiotic gut, whatever, you know, all these gut issues, you might just have uh, a bit of GI inflammation, but inflammation, it, it's a, it's a fire that spreads. So if you have other tissues that are a little bit weak or compromised, it doesn't take a whole lot. If that environment is right, that inflammation will grow. It kind of has like a domino effect. It'll, you know, that fire spreads to the next bush. So for example, even like with, um, obesity, right. And 70% of Americans are, you know, overweight or obese, right? Like it's, it's huge. And even with like, we know that excess body fat is pro-inflammatory. We know that it releases interleukin-6 and pro-inflammatory cytokines. We know that high body fat drives systemic peripheral metabolic inflammation, but now we see how like it doesn't take a whole lot for that inflammatory signaling to reach the brain. So for example, you know, the, the, you know, pro-inflammatory mediators that get released from body fat can actually break down your blood brain barrier and start triggering neuroinflammatory cascades in the brain. So we literally can say like, yeah, obesity is a risk factor for developing depression through this inflammatory linkage. And that's just like one kind of easier example, but there's so many of that. So the central nervous system is not immune to inflammation in the rest of the body. It's very susceptible and doesn't take a whole lot before the blood brain barrier breaks down. And then we start developing this neuroinflammatory cascade in the brain. Wow. I, I didn't know that. So you're saying that fat cells can essentially release inflammatory, uh, what metabolites, cytokines that can cross the blood brain barrier and cause inflammation in the brain. Yeah. All, all the above. Like we, what the big one is interleukin six, which is the most famous pro-inflammatory cytokine it's released from body fat. So the more body fat you have, the more interleukin six that goes to the liver and creates uh, C-reactive protein, the most commonly used inflammatory biomarker. And we see that even like the inflammation driven by obesity that's enough to create an inflammatory response that breaks down the blood brain barrier, activates microglial cells in the brain and drives neuroinflammation. And the thing is now we're really starting to see that, you know, the, the neurotransmitter imbalances, which historically were like, Oh yeah. You know, if you have mental illness, you have a brain chemical imbalance. So you take drugs to balance your brain chemicals like serotonin and GABA and dopamine and whatever. But now we really see like inflammation is what causes a dysregulation of 
of those brain chemicals. So inflammation, it lowers our dopamine, it lowers our GABA, it lowers our serotonin, lowers our melatonin, and then things that we don't want high go up like histamine uh, and um, glutamate are kind of the main two. So now we're really seeing inflammation precedes brain chemical imbalances. Wow. Uh, see, this is the stuff that just, it's so interesting to me because, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, we're, we're talking about neurophysiology, right? We're talking about neurochemistry and it's so complex because we just go, Oh, Hey, we want more dopamine. So like in the nootropic space, they go, Oh, I want more dopamine. So I'm going to take more L tyrosine, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, I want more serotonin. So I'm going to take uh five HTP or I'm going to take St. John John's wort or something. And not only does that not work for many people, but it actually makes these problems worse. And it's probably because like, I don't know who's behind the computer screen saying these in these nootropics groups, like, oh, if you've got depression, take L-tyrosine because it builds more dopamine. I don't know who they're talking to. I don't know what the obesity is of that person. I don't know what the medical history of that person is um, because if they have like, obesity, if they have an excessive amount of fat cells that are releasing these inflammatory cytokines, well, it doesn't matter how much L-tyrosine you take. In fact, um, you know, I know this from the Great Plains people, which is that, you know, L-tyrosine can go down a completely separate pathway to cause excessive uh, neuroinflammation. I forget the the inflammatory thing that it makes. Maybe, you know, but um, uh, it's, on this, it's, one of the, it's one of those big science-y words. Um, but you know, there, there are these other pathways in the brain that if you give it the wrong chemical, it could create a whole new set of problems for you. Yeah, no, you're spot on. So my, my two favorite pathways in the body, you just touched on one, there's the kind yearning pathway and then the, uh, bioterran pathway and what's really, you know, and so any pathway there it's, it's going on in like every cell, you know, different cell types. So we're talking, you know, intracellular biochemistry, but specifically like in the brain, we've got these microglial cells, which are the innate immune cells They they are the white blood cell of the brain. And I always refer to them as they're both the guardians and the architects of the central nervous system because they're there to primarily protect the brain, but they also sculpt your neural networks. So when we talk about uh, neuroplasticity and the formation of new neural networks so that we can learn new skills, develop new habits, develop new beliefs, so on and so forth, that that's really a, how, how is the brain wired? You know, Joe Dispenza has made a big name for himself and a lot of his work is, is based on the theory, the concept of neuroplasticity, but he's approaching it more from a quantum and esoteric kind of psychological perspective. And that's, that's great. I think that's, you know, that's cool. That's great. But if your brain's on fire from, you know, all these prone inflammatory input signals from the environment and the lifestyle, like it makes it really, really hard to create new beliefs and new neural networks because, you know, that neuroplasticity isn't working. Neuroinflammation, neuroplasticity are inherently antagonistic. You know, if you think about the neuroinflammation as the forest fire, neuroplasticity is, is the forest and the trees growing back and growing deeper roots and growing their branches. So it's it's the opposite, you know, the, the birth of new neural networks versus the destruction of those neural networks. And the microglial cells regulate all of that. And so with the neurotransmitters, transmitters, you know, within these microglial cells, these are two key enzymes, IDO1 enzyme and GT, 
GTPCH1. It's like guanosine triphosphate cyclohydrolase 1. Um, but these two different pathways ultimately go on to produce our neurotransmitters, serotonin, melatonin, dopamine, nitric oxide, um, catecholamine, so on and so forth. But what we see is both pathways are dysregulated by inflammatory cytokines and inflammatory messenger messengers. So that's where, to your point, like you could be taking tryptophan or tyrosine or, you know, glutamine or whatever to try to have that nootropic. And that can help for some, but if those pathways are totally hijacked because of inflammation, it, it doesn't really matter. And you're not going to get the end product that you want. And what you're referring to is like, yeah, if you feed tryptophan into that kind of urinine pathway, cause you're like, well, I want more serotonin, but inflammation is driving it down this other pathway to produce quinolinic acid, which is very neurotoxic. It's like dumping gasoline on the fire. So like, first you have to put out the fire, you know, before really feeding the pathway. Yeah. It's like, if you get in like a, like a brand new Ferrari and you're like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, drive this all the way down the I-10 from, you know, Austin, Texas to Los Angeles. And then somewhere along the way, there's like a police officer there. And he's like, no, 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 my friend, you're going to San, uh, you're going to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and you have to take a turn. And now you're just yeah. off to the races on like a whole other place. And, um, and the brain is just so complex in that way. It's so complex. And, um, you know, it's really been brought to my attention, uh, from people who do a lot of these DNA tests, <clears throat> you know, um, and finding these specific genes, like you were talking about, um, you know, there's a couple specific genes that determine like, can you even take SSRIs in the first place? Or can you take like an MAO inhibitor or something? Because, uh, it has something to do with, you know, how your brain generates serotonin, dopamine, GABA, these neurotransmitters, like 40% of SSRIs work for people. Well, the 60% probably have that gene that says, sorry, we're not gonna, we're just not going to make the, uh, the serotonin like that. In fact, we're going to send you on this completely other pathway that, um, you know, your psychologist or your general, your GP doesn't even know about it's written mm -hmm. in, in the literature, but they don't know about it. Instead, what they're doing is they're giving you a pill that's going to complicate that pathway even more. And then it's going to cause, you know, anxiety issues, heart issues, uh, gastrointestinal issues, all kinds of things like that. Yeah. There's, there's a ton of genetic polymorphisms that just totally alter the biochemical state. So it, it is, it, it becomes very hit or miss. And that's the psychiatric model is basically just throwing these different drugs of, you know, antipsychotics that block dopamine receptors or, you know, ser selective serotonin reuptake. It, it's just what like pharmaceutical cocktail creates the desirable enough effect of just kind of managing the condition. But yeah, it's not, it's not fixing the underlying biochemistry or not really fixing the problem. And that's the thing, you know, from more of a philosophical standpoint, I've thought a lot about how I think just pharmaceutical technology has really, and you see this a lot in America and you kind of zoom out and look at the global scale and it's like, wow, America is kind of this Petri dish for, for, you know, big pharma right now where, you know, I would argue that pharmaceutical technology is really enabling our self-destructive style behaviors, right? Because it's like, no, you don't need to change your diet or your lifestyle. You don't need to manage your stress or work on your sleep or exercise or eat real. You don't have to do any of that. Just take this pill and make it all go away. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's, and what blows my mind is there's a lot of people that seem kind of content with that. 
that's what I don't get, you know, and that's not the people listening to this podcast. Like the, the, there are a lot of people out there and you could make, well, maybe they don't know better. Maybe, but I think there's a lot of people that they're just kind of like, okay with that. Cause they would rather just take the pill than change their lifestyle. But obviously then there's those, like those listening that no, they want <laughs> They don't want to be reliant on pills and, you know, like ban, you know, nothing but like scotch tape holding their fractured bodies together. They actually want to feel really good and have yeah. a, you know, vibrant quality of life. So it's nuts. Yeah, man. It's so interesting with the connection of diet and mental health and, you know, it, being in this nootropic space in this biohacking space is really just so much brought to my attention. Just the fact that we really are like, we're chemistry labs, like our bodies are chemistry labs. And there's so many inputs in it that we really are doing our, ourselves. The, the media is doing us a disservice. The pharmaceutical companies are doing us a disservice. You know, when they show those ads of, you know, a couple on a rowboat in the middle of the lake, I took Zoloft and I, my depression was this, and now I feel great. And then I'm going to get pizza. And it's like this direct to consumer advertising that's making it. So, oh yeah, I've got the same problem as that guy in the rowboat or that guy playing basketball basketball with his kid. Uh, all I got to do is go to my doctor and he's got the solution. Bam, there it is. Um, and it's so complex in the sense that I see you talking about things like histamine. And this is something that I don't even understand. And I'm in this like knee deep, you know, I don't think most practitioners understand, but it's a real thing. And, um, and histamine comes in a lot of different ways. Uh, especially in food, you know, there's high histamine foods. And, and a lot of times those foods are like what we consider healthy foods. So can you talk a little bit about histamine and the role it plays, where it comes from and how you even like found this to be a factor in the mental health discussion? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think at, at the end of the day, um, it's like, <sighs> I don't know. I like, I definitely get it. I have a very kind of like specialized set of knowledge and I'm worthless outside of that. Like you want me to change the oil in my car? Can't help you. Like, you, want <laughs> me to, you know, cook you a good meal. Can't help you. But like, I know Modern man. stuff well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah. But, um, it's just like, it's just really, it's physiology, it's cellular physiology and biochemistry. And, and like, I get it. And, and it makes, it breaks my heart because, like, no wonder, like, no wonder we're in the health crisis. The, the general public, I worry for them because it's like they don't stand a chance. Everything is against them. And, and the, the media is insane. You know, I it's only when I travel and I'm sitting in a hotel room flipping through the channels and I see what mainstream media looks like. But it's so blatantly obvious. And I, I know that especially your listeners that are more health conscious and educated, like they get it. But the masses don't like that mainstream media. It works. That's what we saw in the past couple of years. But it's just like, you know, go get your slushy from Sonic. Now take your anti-inflammatory drug for your IBD. Uh, you know, go get this cheeseburger and pizza. And then, you know, here's your antidepressant. Oh, have you been exposed to glyphosate? You might be entitled to compensation. It's like, 
you know, do you not like see and feel what's going on here? We're, we're being promoted pro-inflammatory disease, promoting food and lifestyle in one commercial. And then here's the monetized pharmaceutical solution in the next commercial. Yeah, Like we're, we're being poisoned. And then here's the cure for the poison that we just marketed to you. Right. And that's where, like I mentioned the monoclonal antibodies because like Humira, which I see commercials for Humira constantly, it's a TNF alpha blocking monoclonal antibody. So that's literally the mechanism of action is just, just block the inflammatory signal. Cause we can do that. Now we have the technology that we can do really cool stuff. So it's like, well, it's not doing anything to lower the inflammation or get to the root causes of why there's inflammation. It's just like, Nope, just, just block the inflammatory signal. And so that can, you know, help with symptomology and quality of life. But then what's the problem with that? Here's, here's the big backfire is anytime you're suppressing an inflammatory signaling in the body, you're suppressing your immune system's ability to protect you. So you lower immunity. The, the big issue. Um, and I, I'm just like, <clears throat> I know that no matter how much I talk about it, it's not going to prevent it from happening, but we're going to find ourselves 10 years down the road and we're promoting all these immunosuppressive anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressive mean the same thing. And people don't get that. They think anti-inflammatory, that's good. I, I want to combat my inflammation, but I don't want to suppress my immune system. That's the same thing. To suppress the immune system is to suppress inflammation. If you suppress immunity, you're more susceptible to infections, which we're in uh, this big infectious disease crisis. You would think that matters. So that's what I keep saying is like this new antidepressant drug that there it's in phase two clinical trials. It'll probably roll out. I don't know the next couple of years, but that's how it works is it blocks inflammatory messengers, specifically interleukin six, which can help alleviate depression driven by inflammation, but it also makes you more susceptible to infectious disease. So then it's like, so how are we going to work our way out of an infectious disease crisis and a mental health, this mental health crisis, we're going to give people, immune suppressing drugs for their depression, but then they're more susceptible to catching a virus. Don't worry. We have a shot for that. Like it's, it's idiocracy, but it's brilliant. Like good job, big pharma. You just figured out how to monetize life and death. And, you know, you've got the whole world collapsed on their knees. So America won't reestablish American independence until we lose the grip that big pharma has on our society. And as long as we choose to be seduced by the, you know, the chemically addictive food and the subliminal messaging through brilliantly designed marketing campaigns, you know, so people do, they need to wake up and realize like, Oh shit, like I need to take control of my health. Otherwise I'm going to be slave to this pharma pharmaceutical model and I'm going to get chewed up, spit out. I'll be broke, broken, tired, mis you know, it's, it's really sad. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. I, it's just so funny. Like what you say about when you walk, cause I don't watch TV. I watch TV three hours a, a week when I watch football and that's when I see, Oh, this is what America's watching. You know, it, it's a beer commercial. It's a Domino's pizza commercial. By the way, if you're eating pizza, Domino's, can we, can we do a little better than that? Pizza hut? I had no idea that was still around, but this is what it is. It's like, Domino's pizza, pizza commercial. And then the, the drug for uh, blood pressure, lowering medication. And it's like, well, which one do you want, dude? You know? And it's yeah. like, 
people go, well, if I take the medication, I can still eat the pizza hut. So right. who's winning now? Right. <laughs> you that's, know, that's what I'm saying with this. Like we're just enabling our, our own self-destructive behaviors, right. right? Like if we didn't have all these magical, it, the pharmaceuticals are very impressive. I'm not saying they're not, but that's the problem. It's it, it, like, sure. We should keep developing new pharmaceutical technology because there's a time and a place, but our society has become way overly reliant and it's just enabling because like, yeah, it's okay that you're morbidly obese and chronically inflamed and you have five different comorbid comorbidities. Like it's okay. Cause we have the pills to just keep your heart beating for a few more years. Right. Yeah. It's just, I think it's just a lot of conditioning that, you know, like forever, I think it was maybe what, like 99, 98, when all of a sudden there were like boy bands, you know, like there'd always been boy bands, but it was like, you didn't really pay attention. Then Backstreet Boys, NSYNC really hit. And then there was like a hundred of them and you're like, what's going on? And then it was like, all of a sudden the FM radio turned into like just this circus of like the same five songs being put on repeat. And I really believe it's like that when they started getting real, uh, when they stopped making movies and they just started recycling old movies and superhero movie. They were just going for the easy thing that can make the most money. I really believe this was a kind of conditioning to basically put people in a trance. It's like, how, how are you going to go? I I just stopped going to the movie theater a long time ago. So like, there's no good movies to see. Like there's no original stories. It's like, how many, you know, people can I see play Superman, right? How many people can I see play whatever Batman or whatever? And, um, I believe it was like they knew that the American public was like this and they would just be so easily lulled into this thing where we can do this nonsensical, um, you know, promoting of pharmaceutical drugs that make no sense when you really just take a step. It doesn't take a lot, but you just take a step back and you go, yeah, why are they promoting me a blood pressure medication right after they gave me a commercial for Pizza Hut and Budweiser? You know, and now they're like, well, yeah, that's like totally normal. Yeah, of course, take a, a medication that hasn't gone through the the correct, you know, uh, rigors of clinical trials and all these things. Or, yeah, don't even think about inflammation. Just know that you need more neurotransmitters. So get this, get this, uh, you know, SSRI or this, you know, specific drug or even this nootropic that will help boost that. Because who cares if it doesn't make sense? You listen to the Backstreet Boys. What do you know about common sense? Right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, though, like, uh, you know, we, the people of the United States, we should be pissed off. We should feel highly insulted. Like it's a major insult against our intelligence and our intuition. But you know what? Like, if you don't even realize that you're being insulted, then, you know, it's just like, can't help you. Right. Like, but it's exactly that. I mean, it's like that, that's why like the, the matrix talk about like the last original storyline for the past, like two decades. That's why the whole metaphor of the human battery, right? Like that, that's the whole story of the matrix is like, yeah, machines have taken over the world and the the population are human batteries. They're, they're living in this virtual reality while their life source is being used as a battery for the machine. Like it's a beautiful metaphor for what American society has really turned into. Um, but it, you know, uh, we, we watch the movie and we're like, that was really cool. That was, that was profound. That was entertaining. But then we just play into it. You're like, yes, take me, use me as a battery. You great machine. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So you, you kind of weaseled out of my question about histamine. Oh. I'm going to come back to oh, it yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because no, no, it was very, very good political move on, on your part. I like it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I'm asking because it's, it's a comp we're, we're talking about, you know, the real causes of mental health issues and these things that you're finding in the science that shows like, Hey, this is a contributor to depression. This is contributed to anxiety. This is a contributor to cognitive decline in general. Um, and it's one of these things like histamine, again, it's found in, well, I know, I know it's naturally, uh, endogenous in the body, but you know, we're also overloading our bodies with, um, you know, these histamine enhancing, uh, chemicals, especially from food. And I know this is a big problem in the health space because there are so many quote unquote healthy foods that are high histamine. Um, and I've heard other people talk about this, but I still don't really understand histamine. I know you're talking a lot about it. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, how this whole histamine thing works. Totally. I, I got sidetracked on a political soapbox there, but no, it was solid. It was great. Oh, oh yeah, you're good. You're good. Histamine's cool. Um, it's, it's really a interesting kind of like neuroendocrine immunological modulating compound. Like what did he just say? But histamine modulates the immune response and the inflammatory response. I, you know, it's everybody always thinks about histamine allergies because yeah, it's kind of the, it's the molecule by which allergies exert an allergic, you know, immune response, but the whole point of histamine, you know, causes vasodilation to allow white blood cells to, to migrate to the source of the problem to induce this inflammatory response to, you know, fight off those allergens or pathogens or whatever. So histamine is deeply um, connected to inflammatory processes in the body. Uh, and you can't really say that histamine is anti or pro-inflammatory, it, it could be either, which is really interesting. It's pleiotropic in its effect where under certain situations, it could exert more of an anti-inflammatory effect, but it can also really drive inflammation. I mean, that's a lot of things are that way, like cortisol, you know, cortisol is technically an anti-inflammatory hormone, but it also exacerbates inflammation. So context matters. It depends on the environment, but histamine, um, there's actually histamine receptors in our blood brain barrier. There's histamine receptors on our neurons, our microglial cells. So a lot of people do have, uh, too much histamine. We don't want too little or too much like, you know, Goldilocks effects. We want balance. Right. But a lot of people do have too high of histamine levels. And this does actually break down the blood brain barrier. It triggers microglial activation, neuroinflammation. So they're actually looking, they're doing a lot of research with uh, different like histamine receptor blocking drugs um, to experiment to see how efficacious are these for like autism, uh, schizophrenia, neurodegeneration, depression. So they're kind of experimenting to see how we can use antihistamine drugs, but, you know, using an antihistamine drug that just blocks the receptor that doesn't lower the level of histamine. It doesn't address why the histamine was high to begin with. So, um, histamine can be a big one. It, it you know, it can be driven up from more of a dietary thing or a nutrient deficiency thing. Um, you know, there's ultimately it's like, 
what are we putting in our body or stimulating our body with that drives too high of histamine? How well are we able to uh, metabolize and clear it out? So a lot of people are on the high side and that does really drive neuroinflammation and kind of exacerbate a lot of mental health disorders. Autism and schizophrenia are kind of the two main ones where that's really pretty strongly implicated, but even, you know, a lot of women have like high estrogen and that lowers or that raises histamine and lowers the enzyme that breaks down histamine. So there's a whole conversation we had around like estrogen, histamine, copper, all these technical things. Um, but really the punchline is a lot of people should be keeping an eye on their histamine levels. Cause you know, you think about like, for those that have allergies, how do you feel when you have a allergy flare up? Like you're, you, you've got brain fog, you're probably irritable, kind of grumpy. Uh, you're not very happy, uh, apathy. And it's like, yeah, histamine and mental health don't really go very well together. <laughs> Interesting. Is there like a genetic component to that too? Yeah, for sure. The some people have polymorphisms in the DAO or HNMT or histamine decarboxylate. I was just actually compiling some papers the other night that was looking at what they were looking at was specifically with autism. Do individuals with autism have a lot of like genetic susceptibilities in the histamine related genes. And yes, they do. Um, but that's an autism, but in general, yeah, there, anybody could have, you know, where maybe they produce too much histamine genetically, and then they're not really good at breaking down histamine genetically. So it's kind of one of those, like, well, you can't really change your genotype, but you can change, you know, the expression of the genes by changing your diet and your lifestyle and your environment. So, but I think histamine is a cool one because like, it's easy to measure in the blood. It's, it's on my new tests, a core marker. Um, it's easy to measure, it's easy to track, and it's easy to get under control with a little know-how. So it's something I think is pretty actionable. And what's the like most effective way to control it other than, you know, eliminating all the triggers that make it worse? Yeah. I mean, obviously the, the, you know, triggers is the big one. So it's like, if you, you know, like if you're allergic to cats and you're living with a cat, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like you're just stimulating histamine with the, the allergen exposure, but aside from cutting down on, you know, allergens and antigens, um, it's really kind of reducing histamine production and supporting the clearance. I think it's more supporting the breakdown of histamine that is tripping a lot of people up. Um, because a lot of people have really bad gut health and, uh, in the gut, we have our, you know, enterocytes in the villi and microvilli, those secrete enzymes that break down histamine. A lot of people have inflamed guts. And so they have kind of that blunted brush border villus atrophy. And, you know, if you've got some IBS GI inflammation going on, you're probably not breaking down histamine in the gut very well, but then, um, more systemically, uh, I think one of the big problems is high estrogen, which is really driven by inflammation because that aromatase enzyme that converts estrogen into or testosterone into estrogen, you know, it's upregulated when there's inflammation. So there's a whole hormonal conversation of why do so many men and women low androgens and high estrogens and inflammation is a big part of that. But also as estrogen goes up, <laughs> histamine goes up with it. It lowers the ability to break down histamine. And then also methylation is the other pathway that breaks down histamine and, you know, MTHFR and that whole conversation. So a lot of people are compromised in the two key pathways to break down histamine. So 
I think it's a combination of because our environment is so toxic and pro inflammatory. And then a lot of people are, are really kind of clogging up their ability to break down. Just people are like overflowing with histamine. Mm. And you're saying methylation potentially plays into that. Could you give an ex like a, a very like kind of dummy interpretation yeah. of what methylation is? I know it's, it's incredibly complex, but if you were to kind of whittle it down to like, you know, uh, uh, like you Google it and then this is the, what pops up at the top of Google so that like a five-year-old could understand like how, what is methylation? Yeah, it's, it's, it is a crazy subject and kind of one of my core ones. And that's, you know, there's a whole conversation we had around methylation and, and mental health, like usually with mental illness, it's like, I kind of try to check those boxes of like, there's the neurotransmitter conversation, the neurotrophin kind of neuroplasticity conversation, neuroinflammation, oxidative stress, and then methylation. And it's like each one of those buckets is like equally influential and powerful, but methylation, like the, I think the easiest way to just break that down, you know, it's an intracellular biochemical process. So just, just think it's, it's chemistry that's going on inside your cells, but it's more the fact that that particular biochemical process uh, has a dramatic effect on our mental health, our gene expression, our neurotransmitter balance, and producing a lot of different key things that are essential for metabolic and mental health, like CoQ10 and carnitine so we can burn fat and phosphatidylcholine so we can have membranes. But why methylation is so pertinent to histamine, one of the enzymes that breaks down histamine inside the cell is histamine and methyltransferase, which methyltransferase, so it uses this biochemical reaction to break the histamine. And a lot of people are really compromised in that pathway. So they're just, they're not effectively methylating the estrogen, uh, the well estrogen too, but they're not effectively methylating histamine to, to break it down and clear it. So it just, it's like a bathtub that's overflowing. Yeah. Yeah. And then that just goes right back to, well, instead of putting a bandaid, instead of getting an antihistamine drug, it's like, yeah. well, is there something going on with your methylation process? That's you know, slowing that clearance down and then allowing it to build up. And then now you're getting these reactions. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, if somebody was histamine is a really easy thing to like spot and work with. And, you know, if, if somebody gets mental health relief from taking something like loratadine or uh, Benadryl, like they, they feel better when they take an antihistamine drug, like that's a surefire sign that, you know, you should probably work like naturally, holistically, functionally, and, you know, get your histamine under control naturally. Because like you're saying, you know, blocking the receptor, which is all that the drugs do. Okay. It, it's blocking the effect of histamine, but it's not fixing the problem. It's just a bandaid over a gushing wound. Yeah. And then do you find that, uh, and I think you said this, but um, like this problem of histamine or even inflammation, playing into something like brain fog because you know, you get a lot of, it's, it's just so funny too. Cause now this is a, this is a, this is a COVID thing all of a sudden now brain fog is a COVID thing where it's like long COVID people are complaining about brain fog. Okay. Well, do you know those people if they were complaining about brain fog before, because brain fog is a quite popular thing that people complain about like long before COVID came around. Um, and it's like one of those things that I don't know if, I don't think there's an ICD nine code for it, but it's definitely a sign of something wrong. Yeah. Oh, totally. You know, I would say brain fog is like the, you know, uh, number one symptom of, of histamine issues in general. And, you know, I usually like candida and mold colonization, 
tend to cause a lot of brain fog and it, it is it's associated with the histamine um response but like viruses are, are horrible for cognition and brain fog like you know a virus is a intracellular pathogen and intracellular infection um and it stimulates those pathways that we were talking about earlier that totally hijacks our uh neurotransmitters so yeah i mean with like the long hauler syndrome um you know once you have that virus like yeah i mean it, it's in your body and it could start, you know, reactivating and, and replicating, um, you know, the whole point is to control it, keep it subdued basically. But yeah, the adaptive immune response that viruses induce, it triggers that inflammatory pathway that just totally messes up our neurotransmitters. And so hundred percent, you know, I, I would expect a lot of people, and that's the thing, it's such a bad mixture. Like, you know, people, they've got the virus, they've got obesity, they've got fatty liver, they've got dysbiosis, they've got high histamine, they have high estrogen, they have low zinc and high copper. It's just like, there's every time I'm working with people privately, it's just, there's, you know, like 20 boxes that just have to be checked. And if you can check them all, you start feeling pretty good, but you know, and people want it to be simple. Like what's my root cause? And it's like, ah, oh, it's not one thing. It's a bad mixture of like 20 things going on. So it's a mess. Absolutely. Um, so before we go, I'd love if you could maybe talk a little bit about your microglial activation panel, this, uh, you know, this, I, I don't know if it's a blood panel, um, but it's a, uh, way to find these biomarkers in people to address mental health. So, uh, and it sounds like a very interesting, you know, diagnostic tool that you use and other practitioners are using. So, you know, how, how does this panel work and, and how is it accessible to, uh, to people listening or watching or just anybody in general? Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm super proud of it. Super excited about it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very in tune with the functional medicine world and, you know, what lab tests, a lot of practitioners and providers are using regularly and relying on. And I think the majority of tests that clinicians are relying on are not that great. Like, I don't think that data is very strong. Uh, a lot of it doesn't have established clinical significance or reliability or reproducibility. So I had been creating my own custom, mostly blood panels for a lot of my private clients for years uh, and really finding like what markers are the most reliable when it comes to getting to those root causes of somebody's mental health issues. And I was just having so much success with it. And since I train providers, that's kind of my day job. I was like, all right, I need to create like a panel. So then I can teach my students like run this panel and here's how to interpret it, how to use it, how to build protocols off of it. But then I wanted to take it a step further. I'm like, no, this needs to be like a tool that's accessible to the world because, you know, we didn't go into my story much, but like, you know, I, I was first put on an antidepressant at 17 and nobody ever did any blood work or lab testing. Um, you know, I, I had an intentional overdose and almost lost my life, woke up in the intensive care unit, like throughout my, the whole process and even getting diagnosed with two mental health disorders when I was 21, nobody ever did any active lab testing, which is so bizarre to me, right? Like you go through all that, you almost die, you get labeled with two mental illnesses and like nobody looked under the hood, no objective data about what's going on with your physiology. Like that's just mind blowing to me. And so I created my own panel that, yeah, we call the mental map or microglial activation profiles, what map stands for. And the whole point of the panel was like, all right, we need to actually assess, do they have any 
inflammation and neuroinflammation going on? Do they have any oxidative stress? Do they have these methylation issues? So it's a compilation of these crucial biomarkers that through the literature and anecdotal experience, like they're by far the most reliable, established, uh, clinically studied biomarkers there are that can be used in relation to mental health. And, you know, you can't really even know if what you're trying to do to help yourself feel better and heal. Like, how do you know if it's working? Like you're just, well, I think I feel better. And you're just subjectively monitoring symptoms, which sure that's part of it, but you got to have reliable data, reliable biomarkers. And a lot of these tests people are using are, are not reliable. It's totally different result every time. So I'm really proud of this panel. Cause I think it really maps out, you know, like here's your neuroinflammatory load. And we know that this is going to be messing up your neurotransmitters and hijacking your neuroplasticity. So I think it's the best test out there for, for mental health. We already um, did a seminar on it to train providers. We had a bunch of doctors and practitioners that were really eager to use it with their clients, but we're right now finishing up like our, you know, web pages and everything. Cause we're going to get it out to the world where anybody can, can buy it. And it is primarily a blood test. There is one urinary marker. Um, I'm hoping to create a non-blood version that would be like urine only. That's like my project for 2022. Not everybody can really do a blood draw, but it's mostly blood work. Also a little bit of urine as well. That's so cool, man. I, I really hope people, I really hope that catches on because, um, you know, like I just got blood work done, uh, uh, last week. It was the first time I've gotten like blood work done in years. So I just haven't gone to the doctor and I'm looking at some of these things and I'm like, I don't know. It, like, I feel fine. And I'm looking at these numbers and it all just tells me you're normal, normal. You're, you're a normal, right? Like, and a doctor will interpret that and go, oh yeah, you're fine. And it's like, well, why did I take this? Because I felt fine. I didn't need paperwork to tell me how I feel, you know? Um, right. So it's like the fact that you now have a, 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 a very targeted panel that someone could use where they can go to their doctor and say, yeah, no, I don't have heart problems. You know, I don't have like aches and pains. You know, I, I don't have liver. What I have is like depression. You know, what I have is like anxiety. What I have is like this feeling of, you know, of defeat of just brain fog constantly. And instead of going, well, let's run all of these completely unnecessary metrics, you know, let's get down to the nitty gritty and see like with a panel like yours, you know, not only am I going to tell you, yeah, like all these numbers say you have depression, but like, we can look at the pathway. We could look at like the, the smoking guns, so to speak of why you feel like this and actually put a targeted protocol together that can actually help somebody. So I think that's really cool what you're doing. I really appreciate it. It does. It provides a very plausible, um, you know, physiological mechanistic explanation for why you feel like shit, but also it's giving you reliable data. So that way, you know, whether you want to go take a bunch of curcumin or, you know, nootropics or do some biohacking or work on your diet, it's going to give you data that you can make sure that the intervention of your choice is working. Like, is it moving the needle? Are the biomarkers moving in the right direction and which ones, right? Cause some of them are more, you know, related to inflammation, others more related to methylation. Cause again, people want it to be simple and it's not like, it's not one thing. So you do actually have to get a good lay of 
and physiologically of like, is, is, is it more of like a liver brain axis issue? Is it more of a gut brain axis thing? Is it just, so you just have to check these boxes. Um, but I, I think this panel really checks the major boxes. So that way, yeah, you know, what's going on in your body. You can track the data, uh, while doing whatever it is, whether it's pharmaceutical supplements, lifestyle, hopefully all the above, like that's where yeah. the magic is. So I'm super excited to get out there. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and I'm so glad you said that too, because I know we've, we've really kind of gone after big pharma a lot in this podcast, <laughs> but um, you know, I think there is a place for it. And Absolutely. especially like what we're talking about is like, okay, does it block the receptor and it makes you feel better? Are you getting a reaction? Okay, fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but let's also get the back end of that and do the majority of the work over there and say, while you've got like, you can't just heal a broken arm by just going, Oh, Hey, eat better. And what? No, you have to like put it in a cast. Right. And right. it's the same thing with this where it's like, yeah, maybe you need the cast. Maybe you need the crutch for a little bit, but what you're going to do is all this other work in the meantime, so that one day you wake up and go, Hey, I don't need the pill today. And yeah. when you actually have the numbers to put there and go, well, let's retest and see how those numbers compare to this number. Oh, look, that number is doing better than the number before, you know, now you go, Oh, it's because I've been doing this thing. Like you said, curcumin, nootropics, you know, uh, getting rid of processed food, whatever it is, if you had a mold issue, whatever it is, you're starting to see that in action. And now you can actually, um, now you can actually put the, you know, you can actually take the right action. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's the thing like back in the day, uh, when I was 21, 22, you know, I was on three different psychiatric drugs and, you know, I, I was at my lowest point. Um, but it's, you know, now I'm medication free and I have been for years. So it's like, I, I don't have anything against medications, but like, you know what, you want to be reliant on the medication for the rest of your life. And not every day is great. Right. So it's just like, no, I'd rather not be relying on the drugs. I want to feel great all the time and have the knowledge and data to be able to track to, to know like, nope, I'm right. Even right now, like I'm about to do my retest. Cause like my zinc or zinc copper levels are a little bit off. And it's like, that gives me something to further optimize and track. And so I'm changing my supplement regimen to just keep myself in tip top shape. So it's just empowering people, right? Like it's, it's giving them reliable data so they can be empowered with their health rather being, you know, reliant on, on everything else. Do you have, and I, we're a little over time, but I wanted to ask you this one last thing. Um, you know, because I know you are very dialed into, uh, you know, the latest and greatest in the wellness industry. Do you have a particular, I don't know, supplement or biohacking routine or some cool tool that you've been using, um, that you think, you know, obviously individual bio-individuality, everybody works differently, blah, blah, blah. But you go, Hey, like this one thing, uh, has really been a game changer for me. Or, you know, I started doing it and now I'm seeing like tremendous results, um, do you have a, a thing like that in the biohacking supplement nootropic space? Um, yeah, I mean, kind of like I, I, you know, I have to like preface with the disclaimer of like, you have to have the fundamentals down. Otherwise sure. it doesn't matter. Like, you know, um, it's the, it's the fundamentals, you know, the, the lifestyle and kind of regimen that I have, it, it is, it's 
it's kind of a work of art. It's probably on the really extreme side and maybe, unre- but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's everything about what I do. It's, it's my nature walks. It's my exercise. It's my sleep hygiene, you know, but with all that said, as far as some of the things I, I think I'm most excited about, um, I'm pretty hot on mushrooms. Just, you know, you know, things like chaga and lion's mane and reishi, more of your like therapeutic mushrooms, but also like psilocybin and, you know, kind of your magic mushrooms and psychedelics. I think, you know, I always mention psychedelics because I'm big on it. Um, it seems to not really be, it's exploding right now, but it, it has a ways to go before people are a little bit more open to it. And I get more pushback on it than, than I would think, but like, from a pharmaceutical perspective, like the monoclonal antibodies, um, MDMA is kind of one of the ones that they're working on in ketamine. Like those are kind of the big three pharmaceutical focal points because it's synthetic. They can control the manufacturing and, and the cash flow there. Um, but more from like a natural compound, like psychedelics have probably the most promising research and efficacy behind them. Because when we're talking about neurodegeneration and, and mental illness, ultimately conceptually, what we want to do is reduce neuroinflammation and promote neuroplasticity. And that's a huge topic, but for simplicity's sake, like that's where the magic is at. And a lot of these drugs are kind of working on those mechanisms. But what we see is like lion's mane, which is not a psychedelic. We're just talking about lion's mane mushroom. That's a very promising therapeutic for mental health. It boosts neuroplasticity and kind of subdues neuroinflammation. Um, but the, the psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD and, and DMT, um, their mechanism of action is very, very promising from like a mental illness treatment kind of perspective. So there's a lot of research going into that, but also things like curcumin, quercetin, terastilbene from blueberries, resveratrol. There's a lot of cool like botanical compounds that can work on some of these pathways as well. Fish oil, you know, so there are some, some of those uh, probiotics. I would say actually I'll end on that note is like the probiotics and the short chain fatty acids might be one of the most powerful things with mental health through the gut brain axis is the the short chain fatty acids. Yeah. Lots of, lots of really great stuff there. I mean, the mushrooms, um, I've gotten into, uh, the medicinal mushrooms, the lines main, as long as it's good, you know, because you can go wrong with the, with the mushroom stuff, but if you got a good mm-hmm. provider, I don't know who you use, but I, I love, um, fresh caps and real mushrooms are my two top choices for mushrooms. Um, only because that's the first like lion's mane specifically where I take it and man, I'm on fire like the whole day, like production, you know, uh, learning stuff, memorizing stuff, just, you know, look at the clock one time. It's nine in the morning. Look at it again. It's one in the afternoon. Like where did that time go? Um, there's just something about it that just jives with me. I can't say that's, that would be the case for everybody, but, uh, same thing with the Rishi. Rishi has a very nice, effect. And then, uh, Chaga is the other one I've been taking, which is, uh, actually really helped me a lot get through COVID when Mm. I had it. So, um, yeah, lots of great stuff with the mushrooms. And then of course the psilocybin, it's just so funny because, you know, when I used to, when I, when I tripped, when I was younger, this is before anybody was ever talking about psilocybin in a medicinal sense, I always thought of it in those things where it's like, I can't do it a lot because it has such a profound effect on me that it feels like it moves my brain. 
Like my brain literally yeah. shifts in my skull. And then I'm like, I need to do it again because it moved and I need to move it back to the other place. Um, and it's just so cool that now all this research is coming and it was like, oh, I'm not crazy. It does have a therapeutic benefit and people are actually getting off of their, you know, pain meds and their, their, uh, psychotropic drugs because of magic mushrooms and ketamine and MDMA and these things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the next like gold rush. It's, it's booming right now. I mean, as soon as I have money to invest, I'm investing in it because, um, yeah, the, the science is really strong and promising. I think it's a lot I'm seeing the stuff that we're already, you know, doing pharmaceutically and whatnot. So it's one of those things. It, a lot of people aren't open to it because they kind of connotate it with, you know, dirty hippies, like tripping in the sixties and whatever. And okay. That's projecting arrogance onto something that that's not what's going on. Like look at what it mechanistically does, like take away the esoteric, the spiritual, you know, stigma of it being a, a drug and think of it as like, this is a compound that comes from the natural world that has some really promising research on what it does physiologically. Like they're looking at this for treatment of neurodegeneration and mental illness and, you know, PTSD and the, and the list goes on, but that's the mechanism is it promotes neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, and really kind of reduces neuroinflammation. Plus, yeah, it can be a very spiritually and emotionally, um, transformational experience as well. So it's coming. Yeah, absolutely. Brendan, this has been such a fun talk, man. I love chatting with you, especially when we get into all of this geeky brain science stuff, because man, it goes deep and your perspective on it is so unique and it's so needed right now. Uh, I, I really believe to help us because, you know, you look at headlines every day. Hey, uh, you know, the lockdowns have made mental health worse, the mental health crisis, this, you know, depression rates, all time highs, anxiety medications, all time highs. And it's like, the problem's not getting better. We need other solutions and the approach you're taking where you're going, let's look at the root cause and the root cause it's dirty. It's not fun. It's yeah. deep and complicated, but it can be done. And there is a way out of this. Um, keep going after it, my dude keep getting there, keep, keep. And what you're also doing that I love is you're pushing this out to practitioners, um, you know, and that's just a network effect that can just go on ad infinitum. So, um, keep doing what you're doing, my friend, keep being the holistic savage, spreading that good message. Man, I, I really appreciate it. Like I literally live for these types of conversations and, you know, hopefully, uh, this dialogue, you know, it, it reaches people that it's received well, it's, it's understandable because, you know, that, uh, my whole mantra is just like the, the greatest treatment is prevention. The greatest medicine is teach people how not to need it. Like it's, it's education. It's, and that's really what I think people need in American need and yeah it's like the the sciencey stuff is technical and it gets censored and it gets warped for monetary gain through big pharma like it's a mess from a economic capitalism standpoint um and not you know in our in our the public health it's not in our favor at all so like we have to educate ourselves empower ourselves and kind of regain health independence so i really appreciate it this has been such a pleasure for me i can't wait to share the episode with you know um all my people and uh yeah it was it was great Great. Thank you for having me. You got it, my friend. And last thing, if people wanted to follow you, work with you, learn more about you, where can they go online, social media, all that stuff? 
Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, the holistic savage on Instagram, that's kind of my main platform that I just push, you know, good content out there. So that's the main one, but the business name is metabolic solutions. So the website is metabolic solutions, LLC.com. But, um, that's where those are the two channels through which we're really going to be pushing uh, the new lab test and anybody can order and, and all of that. So that's where to find me. Cool. And we'll put links to all that in the show notes. So whoever wants to can find you, you're just a click away. Uh, be sure to go work with Brendan, check out his stuff on Instagram, Facebook, his website. Uh, it's all there in the meantime. Thank you all for watching. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did leave it a five-star review on iTunes, uh, or subscribe to the channel on YouTube, give it a big thumbs up, leave a comment with any questions you got and be sure to answer all those until next time. Peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain-boosting info, in-depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.